Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And during this year, I will be teaching entrepreneurship at Vinh University in Hanoi, Vietnam. Today's guest is Peter De Silva, author of Taking Stock, 10 Life and Leadership Principles from My Seat at the Table. Peter, welcome. Thanks, Mark. Great to be with you today. Well, I really love this book, and I love um, leaders who actually do it and do it well. And clearly from reading this book, uh, you're somebody that anybody would like to have as a mentor. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. It uh, The whole book process has been very gratifying to me. You know, I didn't set out to write a bestseller, but it became a bestseller. And I didn't write, set out to win a bunch of awards, but I did. I set out to tell stories, to tell experiences, to help others accelerate their own development, possibly uh, by listening to some of some of my stories and my lessons. And so from that perspective, it's been very gratifying. So, Peter, tell us a little bit about your professional background, which they can read about in the book, but it would be good to, for them to know how you got to where you are. Sure. Um, you know, my my background was not in any way choreographed. Uh, is probably opportunistic is a is a bit of a better word, in the sense that I started in the motion picture industry many 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 years ago, and one day I woke up in a cold sweat and realized or believed that VCRs was going to disintermediate that industry, and I'm like, I gotta I gotta get out of here. I've got to get out of this industry. I've got to go find something else. By the way, I was wrong about that instinct. Of course, it took it took Netflix and it took Hulu and it took uh, all these other streaming services to ultimately dislodge uh, the traditional movie industry. But that was my view at the time. And so I'll never forget this. I just um, uh, responded to a display ad in the Boston Globe uh, for Fidelity Investments, which was a fast-growing mutual fund company at the time, of course. And I, I never forget the fellow I interviewed with said, we have no reason to hire you. You have no skills, no knowledge, no competencies, no licenses, but we're growing so darn fast, we really need people. And you seem like a good guy. Why don't you join our organization? So it was off to Fidelity. And 17 years later, you know, I had a wonderful career there through progressively increasingly responsible uh, roles. I moved around for them to Cincinnati, back to Boston, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and just had a wonderful, wonderful career. And then one day I got a phone call from friends of mine in Kansas City that said, why don't you move to Kansas City and help us run a bank called UMB Financial Corporation? And I said, why would I do that? There's absolutely no reason for me to do that. But the more I thought about it and the more I understood the opportunity they were affording me, my wife and I said, let's do it. And that was a 12-year journey of remaking a gold-plated institution in the Midwest by modernizing and really helping that institution be the best that it could be. And then the phone rang and it was Roger Reine, who I knew, who was the CEO, founder, and president of Scott Trade in St. Louis. And he said, why don't you come over and help me? run my company. And I said, well, Roger, I don't know why I would do that. But long story short, I did. And the most interesting thing happened, Mark, and this talks to agility, I think, in your career. Six months later, 
Roger concluded that we needed to sell the company. So here I am in the job for six months. And Roger says, I think we need to sell the company. And I agreed with him 100%. We were too small. Commissions were going to zero. Scale mattered. And we didn't have a significant scale. And so I agreed with him. But six months into the job, I said, let's do it. We sold the company uh, to TD Ameritrade. And I figured TD Ameritrade would tell me to go away, right? That's what happens in most corporate acquisitions. But they surprised me and they said, no, we, we actually think you, there's something here. We really like the way you've led Scott Trade. We like the way you've managed this transition. Why don't you come run the retail platform for TD Ameritrade, which was 90% of the company. Uh, TD had a uh, institutional custody business, but the big the big part of the company was the retail platform. And it's what everybody knows when you think about uh, TD Ameritrade. A couple of years later, we concluded the same thing, by the way. We needed to sell. Uh, that we were too small. Even at a trillion and a half in assets, we felt like Schwab and Fidelity and Vanguard and some of these other monsters were really, really the future and that we needed to sell. So here I am again at another pivot point in my life where um, where I'm involved in another corporate acquisition or disposition. And then, um, you know, Schwab let me go, which is, which is fine. And, um, you know, at that juncture, I really had a decision to make because I had a two-year non-compete. I was out of the industry I'd been in for 30 plus years. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go the self-development path. And I found this opportunity at Harvard University in their advanced leadership initiative. And I spent 18 months with some of the smartest minds in the world, arguably, helping to think through some seemingly intractable social, social impact problems. So it's been an interesting journey. It was not choreographed. One of the lessons I tell young people in particular is not to over-choreograph your career but to let things come to you and to take advantage of them when, in fact, they do. Yeah, it's very almost impossible to choreograph your career. You wish you could, but everything that ever happens to you happens out of your control. You, It's all by happenstance. You have to show up, but at the end of the day, you had no control over any of the stuff that you actually happened to you, good or bad, right? In most cases, that's exactly right. But I do think there's one thing that has helped me uh, and I encourage others to work on, and that's that's relationships. Um, so many of these opportunities came to me because I had a relationship, a prior relationship. So take the uh, uh, the call I got to go to UMB. I knew the Kemper family. I knew them personally. I knew them in a, in a business setting. Um, and when they had a need, they picked up the phone and called. I knew Roger Reine. When he had a need to to find a leader for Scott Trade, he picked up the phone and called. So, you know, I always encourage folks that build those relationships, spend time with those people, genuine time, be an authentic person, and that'll come back around in a positive way uh, as well. So, why did you write this book? I didn't actually set out to write a book. It's interesting. Um, I thought I had this compendium of, of principles that I've been carrying around with me for the last 20, 25 years. And these principles were not a, a revolution. They were evolution. Over time, as I was a practitioner of leadership, um, things just, just began to sort of make sense to me. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to put these 10 principles down. And I would use them especially when I would uh, organize new teams. I'd sit down and I'd say, guys, here are kind of my principles, my operating principles. Let's work within these and find ways in which we can do wonderful things for whatever business it might be. But eventually I said, you know, there's enough material here that I think, and enough stories, enough experiences, and enough material for me to organize this into a, into a book. 
And so I really wrote it to share that accumulated knowledge and call it wisdom, if you want. I, I really felt like it could help others accelerate their own learning. You know, the great thing about learning is once something's been learned, you don't have to relearn it. You can teach it, right? You're a teacher. You understand that. You understand some things are, are, are factual and can be shared uh, with, with others. So I just felt like these 10 life and leadership principles should be shared. And there was one other reason I wrote the book as well, Mark, and we can get into this later. You know, I've, I've struggled lifelong with this disease called Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease, and I was never really open and transparent about it, but I felt like it was uh, I was getting to a point in my life where I wanted to share that as well. Yeah. I, I Could you please explain what that is? Yeah. Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease, or more commonly known as CMT, is a genetic abnormality. It is a... Um, neurological disorder that affects your distal nerves, so the nerves furthest away from your spine, which generally tend to be in your legs and in your hands. And it results in a tremendous amount of weakness. It results in a tremendous amount of pain. And it manifests itself very differently in different people because there are a hundred different subtypes of the disease. Oh. Um, so in my case, it's <laughs> pain and weakness and difficulty walking sometimes um, are, are really the main symptoms that I suffer with. But I have weakness in my hands, weakness in my legs, et cetera. But my sister, who also has it, has been in a wheelchair for 25 years. So it manifested itself differently in her case than it did in my case. I have a daughter who has it, who looks healthy right now, but will continue to see this deterioration throughout throughout her life. There are no treatments and no cures for this disease. And again, we can talk about this later, but I've committed some part of the back half of my life to trying to change that. Um, I'm currently with a group called the CMT Research Foundation. All we do is raise money and deploy that money into the best science we can find to try to find the first treatment and the first and or the first cure for CMT. Uh, um, it's a much more pervasive disease than people understand. There are about 3 million people affected across the world and 150,000 in the United States. That's more than MS. That's more than CF. That's more than a lot of diseases that have brand names, if uh, if if you will. So that's a little bit about it. It impacted my choices in life, early in life. It impacted you know how I functioned, the kind of leader I became. Um, and and again, it's it's just been a part of uh, a part of me since day one. Yeah, and that was going to be my next question: how it affected you. But let's go back to about leadership. Are are leaders born, or can they be trained? You know, there was an article about twenty five years ago in the Harvard Business Review, and that was exactly the title. The title was, if I remember it right, it was "Our Leaders Made or Born." Um, and it was an interesting article. I remember it distinctly. And it went through some of these uh, physical traits. Like, for example, there had the, was a belief that the taller you were, the more likely it was you were going to be a leader because right. you were imposing and you had certain physical characteristics that uh, that led you in that that regard. That was turned out not to be true. I mean, the, the analysis sort of came back and said, no, that's not quite right. Um, there may be some traits that create some predisposition, predispositions, if you will, but absolutely not. Anybody can be a leader, and that leader doesn't necessarily even have to be at the top of the organization, right? We know leaders in the middle and lower parts of our organizations, and they're just as valuable and sometimes more valuable than than leaders, quote, leaders who sit at the top uh, top of the organization. So I firmly believe that leaders are in fact made some are made of circumstance 
right? We all know about the battlefield promotion. Um, you know, the person who's uh, who's who's in battle, who the you know his commander gets killed, and all of a sudden he's the commander and has to rise to the occasion. That happens in business sometimes, right? Somebody leaves, and all of a sudden there's an opportunity. And can you rise into that? Can you rise into that? But I think everybody learns from trial and error. There are circumstances. There are mentors that help folks become become better and better leaders. Um, and so, no, I've never believed leaders are born. They are made, and they are made from their own experiences. They are made from their own um, um, approach, if you will. And uh, I think most leaders are, are made, not born. Yeah, I would uh, agree that for the most part that that's absolutely the case, for sure. Um, you spent 30 years in the financial services industry. What were some of the biggest leadership lessons you learned? You know, this is where kind of the 10 principles come in that I enumerate in the in the book in the sense that these 10 were accumulated over a period of time. Again, it wasn't overnight. It was over many, many years. I, I began to realize that these 10 actually had some, some value and some meaning. Um, but here are a couple that I think are most important uh, for me. The first is about risk-taking. And I think taking intelligent and well-calculated risks is incredibly important for leaders. You can't be a leader and not take some kind of some kind of risks, right? That, but the key is they need to be intelligent, well calc well calculated, and well managed. And so don't avoid risk, just make sure you understand it. And if you're comfortable with the worst possible outcome, should you pursue that path or take that risk, then you should do it. It's that, it's that simple. Second, and this was really important and really early for me, and I'm glad it was early, is I came to conclude that leadership skills were far more important than technical skills over time. And so while you may look at my resume and say, oh, you're a financial services individual, true, but I would argue I'm a leader. <laughs> and you can move me around into lots of different situations, and the same leadership principles are going to apply. And so for me, it was a recognition that leadership skills were more important than, quote, technical skills, and that that was the path I was going to pursue. The third I talk about a lot in the book, which is relationships. And we've already touched on this. The need to build mutually beneficial, durable relationships is incredibly important. Whatever time you put into that will pay back in multiples uh, of dividends over the, over the course of your life. Operating with a sense of urgency was really important too, right? So it's it's not okay to sit back and have the same problem show up on your desk every week. You have to solve it. You have to do it in an urgent, an urgent sort of sort of way. And I, I found myself always trying to make sure that we were moving with the proper sense of urgency, not chaos by any means, but with a proper sense of urgency to get things resolved. And maybe the last one I'll I'll, I'll point out is focus and finish. Focus is a very powerful and positive thing. I have seen so many leaders, so many organizations that try to do so many things and they do all of them mediocre. Pick something you can be better than anybody else at, whether that's you as a human being, whether that's your company, your business, your not-for-profit, just understand what you do better than anybody else or could do better than anyone else and go do it and then finish it right? Finish it and move on to the next thing. I always encourage my teams, we're going to focus, we're going to get that done, and then we're going to move on to the next thing. It doesn't mean you don't do things in parallel, 
but it does mean that the most important things you have to do sequentially. With all the laws enacted to prevent another 2008, could a similar scenario happen again in the near future from the time you've spent in the financial services world? Yeah, I lived through 2008. And I remember the day, this is the God's honest truth, where one of our traders walked into my office and he said, there's no market anymore. I said, what do you mean there's no market? He said, all the buyers and sellers have pushed away from the table. No one will do business with each other. And I'm like, okay, this this is serious. This is this could be the beginning of the end if that's indeed the case. Over the next few days, you know, the market opened up a little bit and uh, uh, we would have to over collateralize things like do 102 percent of collateral versus 100 percent to get the market opened up again. Uh, but it was a scary, scary, scary moment. But the question is, you know, Laws are interesting and they're necessary and they're part of the solution, but it really takes moral leaders. It takes leaders of character who understand that doing the right thing is more important than doing the expedient thing. I mean, I don't think we're about to have another housing crisis. And by the way, whatever happens next will likely not be a replay of what happened in the past. We had the dot bomb issues in, in 99, 2000. We've had a housing crisis. We've had a pandemic. We've had a number of issues. There will be something, and I'm not going to pretend that I know what it is. So the question isn't whether there's going to be another thing. There's going to be another thing during our lifetime. It's a question of how do you respond to it? How do you as an individual, how do you as a company uh, respond to the to the threat that uh, that emerges? And it will emerge as a black swan. I can almost guarantee you that. Um, but I do think laws are only part of the solution. It takes moral leaders. It takes leaders of character to really do the right thing, not the expedient thing. And that's how we will uh, not avoid the next problem, but work our way through the next problem. Yeah, this is kind of my next question. What kind of penalties, aside from corporate fines, is what seems to be insignificant personal fines would stop unethical behavior? I mean, what do you really have to do? Because if it's just a corporate fine, it doesn't really affect them. Uh, very much, but maybe taking all their personal assets with crap, get their attention. What what do you think needs to be done there? You know, it's interesting. Back into to 08, there was a lot of this discussion during and after the 08 crisis, right? That they were going to go reclaim people's compensation. They were going to go reclaim ill-gotten gains. And very, very, very little of that happened. Yes. Uh, the, the laws really defended the the defendant, if you will, in that in that particular instance. Look, it's hard to legislate ethics. Um, you can't legislate ethics at the end of the day. But there's one group that actually has all the power, and I'm not sure that they recognize they have all the power. And it's not Congress, and it's not the, the judicial branch. It's consumers. Consumers yeah. have all the power to make decisions with their feet and with their wallets, with companies that are not ethical or are not moral or are not doing things in the best interest of the, the country or the economy or the environment, whatever it is. And consumers need to use that power. They need to organize and use that power. I think that's the only way that ultimately these companies will, you know, will, 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 will be held to heed, if you will. No, no question about it. When you were sidelined for two years after Charles Schwab bought your company, how did you mentally manage that? I mean, you you know, you're a guy who's used to being at the top um, and being in high level leadership roles, if not running the organization. H how do you manage to deal with that? 
Yeah, Mark, this was really hard. I remember that day like it was yesterday, and I was expecting it. I mean, they had no reason to hold on to me. They they had other people who could do the the role that I was doing. Um, but I came downstairs and told my wife. I said, "Look, you know, it looks like I'm I'm going to be severed, and I'm going to have a two year non compete." And you know, she's like, "Okay, we kind of expected that. Great." The question was, "What do you do? What do you do now?" And given that I couldn't be in the industry that I had spent so much time in, I had to pivot. And I had to open my eyes and my mind to different different things. And so this is where the Harvard program came in. And a friend of mine had said, you really ought to look into this Harvard Advanced Leadership Initiative. It's a great opportunity. It's an 18-month program. You've got two years. You, you can retool your own brain. You can work with some of the smartest people in the world. And you can begin to really uh, have an impact on some of these intractable social problems. So it was a big pivot for me. Um, and it was extraordinary. I mean, I'll just be honest, the the ability to sit uh, across the table from some of the brightest minds around really was um, something that that really was enthusiastic. I was enthusiastic about that. And I learned a ton about other perspectives. And here's the big thing I learned. I spent 35 years in, in the industry, in the business, solving problems through one lens. And that lens was, what does it mean for my business? How do I solve this problem so it either doesn't hurt my business or it can help my business, right? When you take that lens away and you're sitting around the table and you're talking about complex issues like racism or poverty or whatever it might be, and you don't have your business lens on, you can really sit back and look at the problem in a very, very, very different and more holistic way. And, and I found that that was very helpful for me. And by the way, all those leadership lessons that I took away during that 18 months are going to go with me into my next into my next role, to whatever it is I do now. All that knowledge, all that wisdom is going to go with me, and I will apply it in uh, in my next role. So it was it was hard. I'm not going to lie. It was very hard mentally and emotionally at first, but I quickly was able to find the Harvard program, and I was very quickly able to find three or four corporate boards as well to participate on. And that that really got me through that difficult period. Yeah, because it's not a matter of uh, of money because you've already done well. It's a matter of how do you keep yourself intellectually engaged and stimulated and useful. And if you not feel useful, I mean, I know plenty of guys who work into their 90s, not because they have to, but they want to feel a sense of purpose every morning. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more. And you know, a friend of mine used to say that retirement is God's waiting room. And I have no <laughs> getting there too early. <laughs> um, so, you know, it it basically is exactly as you said. It's about purpose. It's about purpose in life. It's about impact and impacting others in a positive in a positive way. Some of that impact we never know. Uh, I'll give you an example. Like the book I wrote, I wrote a book. I get emails, letters, notes from people saying it touched them in some way. It helped them deal with a problem or it helped them see something in a different in a different light. I mean, what pride I take when I get a note from somebody saying, wow, your experience actually helped me with my need. And, and for me, there's nothing better than that. A um, question from the audience. How leaders should deal with being overwhelmed, especially if they're stuck in a situation that multiple important urgent matters pop up, time and time is short? Are there any uh, top tips that you can learn to deal with several deadlines when it's difficult, uh, when it is uh, difficult, uh, and to give priorities without 
um, being overwhelmed? Yeah, it's an excellent question. It happens a lot. Um, I would say this, you have to use the people and the resources around you uh, effectively. And so, you know, for me, it was always, okay, I've got these seven competing priorities. I can't do all seven, but I've got a COO who can do this one. And I've got a head of HR who needs to lead that one. And I've got a CFO who needs to lead that one. You can't put it all on yourself. Um, You know, you build teams for a reason. You build teams with specific competencies and unique competencies so that they can handle certain things. That doesn't mean you're absolving yourself of the responsibility. It just means you have to be a good delegator. You have to be a good, um, you have to have the ability to help people uh, with that delegation. You're still accountable. Let's be clear. You're still accountable. But I, over time, learned how to delegate retain retain accountability and responsibility. Um, and then ultimately, if I needed to, make the final decision. But I didn't need to do all the work in between. I could have others support me, help me think, help me think things through. Oh, and by the way, I always came up with a better answer by engaging more people than just trying to figure it out myself. But the key is use the resources around you. Make sure that they understand what exactly it is that you need them to do. Have them bring their best thinking back to you for your ultimate decision. And I find that's the best way to deal with what can sometimes seem overwhelming. Yeah, I agree with you. It's good sound advice. Um, Please talk about being a Harvard University fellow with the Advanced Leadership Initiative. How does one get selected and what impact did that experience have on you? Yeah. Um, so the selection process was was actually pretty extreme. So there's a, you know, you have to write an essay, you have to be interviewed by a bunch of professors uh, at Harvard and some of the administration of the advanced leadership initiative programming. So it wasn't like pick up the phone and get and get in. Um, but that was that was good in the sense. And it helped to prepare me for what was what was to come. The program is this, typically it's a 12-month program, but because of COVID and because the first semester was entirely virtual, the university was, was very great, gracious in the sense they gave us, a, an, our class, an extra six months to enjoy the university setting as opposed to the virtual setting for that first six, uh, first six months. I will tell you that the program challenges you in ways you haven't been challenged in the business setting, as I acknowledged earlier. You're going to deal with problems, um, you know, social problems primarily, through a very different lens. You're going to have an opportunity to really think about how those problems manifest themselves and what some solutions might be. One of the greatest things I think they do in the program is you can take pretty much any class you want at Harvard. I mean, imagine that. You can audit any class you want. You can be in the class. You can ask questions. But uh, you don't have to take the tests or write the papers. I mean, what's better than that, right? Um, so yeah, I took classes class. with I took classes with some of the brightest minds in in the world. I took a class with Cornell West uh, about American democracy. I, I took a class with David Gergen about the art of public uh, public service and public public leadership. Uh, I took class classes with some of the greatest minds about uh, the relationship between the United States and China, and so not only. Did did you focus on these these um, kind of social challenges? But you you actually had the the run of the university, and so for me, I I just I would never trade that experience. I would never trade the opportunity to self development um, at a great university where you can kind of have the run of the place. Um, I don't know. I just found it to be a, a great thing at that point in my life. 
Now, there's a great book that was written called The Third Chapter. And what Harvard tries to do with this program is it tries to find people like myself who are probably in their late 50s, early 60s, who have had a modicum of success. And they say, you're about to enter the third chapter. And if the first chapter is learning and growing and the second chapter is doing and experiencing, the third chapter is really about taking that accumulated knowledge and wisdom and giving back. So that's the thesis, right? So the program is built around this idea that you're at that inflection point in your life and maybe you're going to, quote, give back to society. Um, uh, and, and there's a fourth chapter, by the way, which we don't talk about because it's short and it's it's towards the end of end of your life. So the third chapter, the argument is that's when you can leave the greatest impact. That's when you can have the most success because you're taking all this wisdom and knowledge and applying it to solving difficult problems. Uh, didn't you love being at Harvard about, you know, I found uh, when I was at Wharton that the professors, as brilliant as they were, they were much nicer people than at other universities that weren't as smart. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, they never said no. It was, I mean, like I call them up and say, hey, can I come visit for 15 minutes? And it'd be two hours. Uh, because you know we'd have a we'd have an interesting dialogue that was that was going on with my book. I asked a few of them to help me read it and and edit it. They're like, sure, sure, happy to happy to do that. So yeah, it's not standoffish at all. It's very inclusive in that way. Yeah, I found uh, the smarter they were, the better, the nicer they were, and more uh, giving your time. And we've had lots of folks from Harvard and Wharton and some of the other um, you know star universities on the show. And those folks couldn't have been nicer and especially yeah. answering people's questions and even giving out their emails to answer yeah. additional questions. Yeah, it's generally true. Found that, yeah. yeah, I think it's wonderful. You spent 17 years of fidelity investment and run and owned by the Ned Johnson family. What was the culture like and what did you learn about leadership, good and maybe not so good? Yeah, you know, that was sort of my formative set of experiences, right? 17 years is a long time, but it was my first like real job, if you want to call it that, uh, in, in the financial industry, at least. Um, so so here's, here's what I learned. Number one, you know, so much emanates from the top. And Ned Johnson was a genius. Um, he, he was the kind of guy who just could see the future before others could see it. So when others, for example, would say, you know, we don't want to make it easy for clients to take money out because goodness gracious, that would be terrible if clients took money out. He said, no, 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 you got it entirely wrong. If we make it easy to um, uh, let clients take money out, they'll put more money in. And so we created check writing, for example, on, on money market mutual funds, right? But it's just a different way to look at to look at the world. And he did that time and time and time again. But he was maniacally focused on innovation, maniacally focused on clients. Um, you know, it was always about the client. What's right for the client? He had a very clear vision of the future grounded in, in, in innovation for sure. He was the kind of man, so the organization, you know, permeated these, these feelings. Incredibly ethical. Always do the right thing. It's not even a question mark. You will always do the right thing, even if it costs us something in the in the short term. There was a culture at the company about moving people around to get different experiences, to learn and to grow and accelerate your learning and growing. I had 17 jobs. I had 21 jobs, rather, in 17 years. I think about that. These weren't like assignments. These were jobs. Now, I'll tell you the other side of that. So that was the wonderful part. I'm always moving. I'm growing. I'm learning. I'm 
going to Cincinnati, I'm going to New Hampshire, I'm going to Rhode Island, I'm doing all these wonderful things. But here's the bad side of it. I, I never felt like I stayed in a position long enough to enjoy the success of what it is that I was working on. So for example, I got a little bit of reputation as a fix-it guy. Like, go fix this, go fix that. And that's fine. But at the on the other side, I think you judge leaders not in the first 12 months, but in the first 36 months, in the sense that leaders need to come in and do an assessment. They need to put their own plans and teams in place. They need to execute against that plan. And then they need to be held accountable for the results that come out of that plan. I never felt like I got to stage three or four. I was always moving around. And that was fine and it was exhilarating. But in my, I took that away. And when I have worked with leaders in the future, I'm like, look, we're going to move you around quickly, but we're going to leave you there long enough to either enjoy the success that you created or to suffer through the consequences of what you've created. Right. So, so that was one thing. The second thing I, I learned is taking risks and taking risks on young executives. And I'll tell you a short story that I think it's very instructive in this regard. So I had a boss by the name of Fred. And Fred one day came in my office and said, I want you to move to Cincinnati. And I said, I don't want to do that. And he said, no, no, you need to do it for your career. It'll advance your career. Get away from headquarters. You know, you'll be, you'll grow much more quickly. And I said, Fred, I, I don't want to do that. Long story short, uh, we ultimately did it. My wife and I ultimately agreed to do it. And this really strange thing started to happen where Fred would come down uh, to Cincinnati most every week. He'd sit in his office, he'd read the Wall Street Journal, he'd make some phone calls, and he'd go back to Boston. And I'm like, okay. I mean, if he needs me, I'm here. And if I need him, he's here. This went on for two years. At the end of two years, my term was up, and I was invited to go back to Boston and do something, something different. Great. So one night, I'm at a cocktail party, and I'm talking to Fred's boss, Mark. And Mark says to me, Peter, what a wonderful job you did. We're so proud of the work you did down in Cincinnati. And to think, none of us on the executive committee thought you could do it. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, what, what just happened? And so the next day I walk into Fred's office and I said, what, what was that all about? Like, tell me what happened. And he looked at me and he said, hey, it all worked out okay, right? I said, yeah. I said, but what happened? And he said, look, you were a young guy, 30, 31. You were like the youngest senior vice president in the company's history. We put you in a really difficult situation down in Cincinnati. Um, I knew you could do the job, but others didn't know you, and they weren't 100% sure. So I stopped him, and I said, now I get it. You came down there not because you thought I needed help, but to demonstrate to the rest of the executive team that you were there if something, if something was going off the rails. And he kind of hemmed and hawed, and he looked at the floor, and he said, yeah, you caught me. That lesson has stayed with me my entire life. And when I talk about developing young people or young executives, I talk about building fences around them. I talk about this idea that near failure is a more powerful teacher than actual failure, right? And the way I work with young people is to say, look, I'm going to give you a lot of decision autonomy not full decision autonomy, but a lot of decision autonomy. And however, if I see you getting up to the fence, so to speak, I build a fence around him. If I see you getting up to the fence, I'm going to pull you back. And we're going to have a conversation about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And if you convince me you're on the right track, great, let's do it. If you don't, then we're going to re reassess and recalibrate where we're at. That was one of the biggest lessons I took away from my entire time at Fidelity. 
and it became a big part of how I lead. You know, and clearly you love coaching people. Indeed. So what kind of person, like over the years, what's the profile, the type of people that are able to thrive in a big organization that you were in? What, what, what's the, what is the profile? What's the skill sets and so forth that you need? Yeah, it's a good, it's a really good question. And I'd say number one is flexibility. Um, number two would be understanding the culture. Really understanding the culture of an organization is so important. Like Fidelity, I understood the culture. Scott Trade, it was Roger Riney's company. I understood what he what he wanted. I also understood one other thing in both of those companies, which were private, um, that I wasn't the ultimate decision maker. And you have to also be humble enough to understand that you're not the ultimate decision maker. And I'll give you an example. You know, Roger Riney and I used to debate all the time about the number of branches we had. And he he had 500 when I got there. And I thought we could do it with maybe 350 and save a whole bunch of money and, you know, be a more efficient organization. And so, you know, I did what any executive would do, put together a plan, took it to him. We, we wrestled with it back and forth. And he ultimately said, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. He said, your plan makes a ton of sense. I just believe in my bones. And it's the way I was brought up that local local uh, local presence matters. That brand in the local market, that person in the local market outweighs the savings that we might get uh, by closing down these branches. I had to accept that at the end of the day. Now, I've worked with leaders in the past who can't accept that and end up leaving. Like, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm going to go do, do something else. That's yeah. fine. But you have to accept the fact that as senior as you might get, there's probably somebody above you. And oh, by the way, there's probably a board above them. And so you have to accept that fact. And I think you have to, your job is to give your best advice possible. Do your homework, give your best advice, but recognize in a humble sort of way that you're working for them and they're not working for you. Uh, you work for multiple family businesses, each having a high turnover rate of senior leadership, as you mentioned in the book. What should an outsider prepare for? And do you think this happened at the companies uh, you worked at? Why do you think this happened? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I go back to culture. I go back to you have to understand when you join an organization what that culture is all about. And you have to subscribe to it. If you're going to go to an organization, particularly a private company, and fight that and say, I'm going to change this culture. I'm going to, I'm going to make it my own. That's that's difficult when you have an owner founder. Now, what I have found about owner founders in particular is they have a level of care, a standard of care that is much higher than the rent to CEO in the sense that their name's above the door. I yep. mean, you know, Crosby Kemper's name, it was called UMB Financial Corporation, but everyone knew the Kemper family, you know, was the principal shareholder and the and the leader. Everybody knew Roger Riney ran Scott Trade. Everybody knew Ned Johnson ran Fidelity, right? These were family-oriented companies. Their names across the door. The standard of care, the kinds of risks they're willing to take, the brand equity that they want to retain is so, 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 so important. So some senior leaders walk in saying, you know, I see inefficiency and I'm going to fix it. I'll, I'll just go back to my branch example with, with Roger. Um, 
he didn't want it fixed. He had a different sense of the value of that. And I had to accept that. And I did. Now, ultimately, I said, great, I get it. I see your point. You know, let's let's move on and find other ways to be more efficient or, or whatever the case might be. So understanding culture, understanding, you know, who you're working for, understanding you're not necessarily the ultimate decision maker, but your job is to give your best advice each and every day uh, to that individual, uh, I think are some of the key things, the key attributes that lead to success. Uh, question from the audience. In your opinion, are startup founders and CEOs harder to coach because they seem they have total clarity as to what they want? Do they even need coaching? If you have invested or worked with startup founders, can you share some success stories where you uh, helped made uh, made them uh, made a difference? Yeah. So I'm on the board of five private companies right now. And we have a different, they're different, they're all different in the, in the sense that in some cases, one's a very large national firm. Um, you know, it's the largest advisory firm in America, but it's a private company run by private equity. And that has a, they have a professional CEO who was brought in with a very specific mandate to to you know improve the organization got it that's one end of the spectrum on the other end of the spectrum i work with a small company out of boston with a an owner founder ceo who's been at this for about 15 years and has been able to take the company to a level of scale uh subscale it's not where it could be but he's he's doesn't have all the skills and abilities to get it to where it needs to be but he's he's the kind of leader who who just eats up our conversations, our mentoring. You said I like mentoring. Absolutely love mentoring. He eats it up. He wants to learn. He wants to grow. He wants to better understand uh, how to take the organization from where it is to where we think it could it could be. And he has no arrogance about it. He has no ego about it. He's like, look, I I don't know what I don't know. Um, and help me. And so that's another profile of a of a owner founder CEO who's yearning for somebody to help him learn, grow, develop, and, and help to grow our, grow, our, grow our company in that particular instance. I have one other one where you have a, a fairly longstanding owner, founder, CEO, um, who, who is pretty set in his ways. He's like, I know what I'm doing. I need your support to execute my plan, but I'm not really interested in changing my plan. Um, and I would say, you know, he's, he's generally right. But honestly, that that focus, that maniacal focus on what he wants to do, I think sometimes uh, he's got blinders on and kind of misses the bigger picture. I think he'll be successful. Don't get me wrong. But I think he misses the bigger picture. So, you know, owner, founder, CEOs and, and, and whether they're coachable or not is situational in many cases. Um, I think each of them, though, that I've worked with are open to listening. They're open to my ideas and my thoughts, some more than others. Um, but I think ultimately, they recognize that the better ones recognize they don't have all the answers, and that they can benefit from the dialogues that we that we go through. So I think some mentoring is, is possible there. Um, question, uh, what are the pluses and challenges of working for family businesses? Yeah. Um, so most of mine were even, uh, you know, at least three of the four. Uh, Fidelity was certainly a family business, UMB Financial Public Company, but family dominated. 
Uh, Scott Trade was a family business, and even TD Ameritrade was started by the Ricketts family, and still a lot of a lot of their uh, their culture was still was still there. Um, I think a couple things. You know, they tend to be smaller, and so you you've got to really make sure you understand the culture again. Two, the relationships are extraordinarily important, and it's a double edged sword. It can be a double edged sword, right? Well, you've got to have these great relationships, but on the other hand, it is it is small at times, and so sometimes those relationships can get can get stressed. One thing I really liked was, you know, privacy, quite candidly, as to compensation and benefits. I mean, when you're in a public company, you know, you're you're out there. I mean, everything about you is is, is out there, and uh, I didn't really really care for that. I would say uh, on the private side or family side, sometimes again the companies can be smaller, so size and resources sometimes are a challenge. I remember going from Fidelity, which was resource rich. My goodness, we had all kinds of money. We, we could do whatever we wanted. We spent money on technology like crazy. And I went to UMB and it's like, yeah, we have a budget of like $12 million for technology. And I'm used to like a billion. Um, so, you know, size and resources uh, are sometimes a challenge. You know, lack of liquidity for the stock. I mean, you're going to get paid in shares and private companies have a lot less liquidity than than owning a public company. And we've talked about this before, but I think the decision-making process, process with the owner and the founder, um, recognizing again that they have ultimate decision authority, um, your job is to consult and advise, uh, but not necessarily decide on the, on the big issues of the day. And, and you have to get used to that. Candidly though, I'll be honest, I, I, I preferred it. Having done both two public companies, two private companies, I have preferred the private companies um, because I think you can take a longer term time horizon. I think you can make a mistake or two without, you know, having it splashed on the front page of the paper, uh, if you will. Uh, I don't have to deal with analysts. I mean, for 12 years, every quarter I met with analysts and that that's tiring. And the amount of prep time and the amount of effort that goes into that and the strain and the drain of a week every quarter to put all that together, it was something I didn't miss. A question from the audience. If leadership is learned, why uh, women are underrepresented in the top leadership positions? It seems the gender gap is less when organizations, companies are small in size and operate uh, local, but the bigger the organization, it seems less likely to have female leaders. Your thoughts? Yeah, so I don't have the data in front of me, so so I want to be a little a little cautious. So just know that these are indeed thoughts and and observations, more than you know informed by by all facts and data that I have at my fingertips. But I think your general premise seems to be right from my observation. Um, you know, look, but you, you have to also put this in perspective. Let's go back twenty or thirty years, and the progress that's been made has been nothing short of remarkable. It was necessary. It was needed progress. Don't mistake me but it, it is progress nonetheless it's 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 been it's been quite remarkable and I think that progress will absolutely continue uh for sure uh, um you know let's be honest the, the women in particular didn't have the same opportunities didn't have the same mentoring maybe didn't have the same um you know opportunity to to inter interact with with certain people didn't have boardroom uh presence etc but all of that has changed and needs to continue to evolve even even more. Um, I have I have two daughters. You know, one's a scientist, um, and she does amazing amazing research with sharks in the ocean, and and does amazing things. And just started her own company. I mean, literally, she's now a CEO of a 
of a small of a small company called Juice Robotics. She's committed to making sure that women and others actually uh, are are you know are able to participate with her. Um, <laughs> this is a young woman who you know has been on Shark Week. If you ever watch Shark Week, you'll see my daughter Christine Christine De Silva. Um, and the first year she was on there, and this this mortified her. The producer said, "We don't want you to go in the water." And she said, "Well, why? I mean, that's what I do." And they said, "Well, we don't want you to get your hair wet, and you won't look sure. as good on on camera." Talk about anger and frustration on her part. So she said, "Well, that's fine. Then I'm going to drive the boat. I'm going to drive the boat." And he's like, "Fine, you can drive the boat." The next year, she was in the water. Um, sure. So the, the the point though is, I think you know, there's progress that's been made. There's much more progress that needs to be made. I would encourage women and people of color and, and, and such to just continue, just continue to work hard, continue to demonstrate their capabilities and competencies, learn from each other. And I think this progress we've seen will continue. Well, I just saw your daughter on, uh, on the internet and I'm sure when you guys are together, they say that you're her father not that she's your daughter, because she's been very successful in her space. She's a special young young lady. She's just 30, and she started her own company. She's got her own productions now, and uh, she's finishing her PhD. So, so she's a special young lady. She's a slug. She doesn't do much. You have to really discipline her. <laughs> like her father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just too lazy. Uh, what obligations, if any, do local leaders have to their communities, which you mentioned in the book during your presidency of UMB Financial Corporation? Yeah, this is something I didn't fully appreciate early in my career. But when I moved to Kansas City and became CEO of UMB Bank, uh, the bank is a big part of the community. And, you know, banks in particular, I think, have an obligation to give back to the communities from which they draw their strength. I mean, the local community gives them their deposits and said, here, I'm trusting you with my deposit, my hard-earned money. Go lend it out prudently and do good things for our community. And when a bank lends money, obviously, that improves economic activity, or hopefully it does, and hopefully improves economic outcomes for the company and for the employees and, and, and all the others that are vendors and others that are affiliated. And so I believe fundamentally, not just bankers, but companies in general have stakeholders, right? We talk about shareholders as stakeholders, vendors as stakeholders, associates as stakeholders, and communities are clearly one of the stakeholders. And I believe companies have an obligation to give back from to the communities which from which they draw their strength. Um, so that to me is is like elemental in in the way I think about things. Um, when I was in Kansas City, you know, I probably chaired almost every not-for-profit. I had a black tie on almost every weekend uh, to raise funds for some needy organization in the community, and I think uh, I think that's important, very important. Um, what skills are uh, needed uh, to stay at the top as long as you have? You know, to run organizations. I mean, you were uh, president of the company in Kansas City. How long was that? Twelve years. Twelve years. Mm -hmm. That's a long time to stay at the top of leadership and stay fresh and keep people uh, focused on uh, the success of the organization. Because eventually, they get tired of hearing your voice. So, how do you manage to do that? 
A really good question. I, I, I think this isn't a skill, but it's an outcome. Uh, the first is results, right? You have to have results, positive results, obviously, uh, to stay at one organization for a long time. Two, I think you have to reinvent yourself from time to time in the sense that, you know, the company evolves, you have to evolve. You know, you can't just sit still and be idle and say, oh, I'm the same person I was 12 years ago. No, you have to learn, you have to grow, you have to adapt, you have to reinvent in in some cases. Um, the ability to work with different people and different leaders and different leadership styles. I mean, I had board of directors of, I don't know, 12 or 13 people. They're all different. They all have different needs. They all have different desires. They all have different interests and such. Um, and I learned this at Fidelity. I mean, as I said earlier, I had you know, 21 jobs in 17 years or whatever it was. That meant 21 different bosses in 17 years. You have to be able to adapt your style. Um, you have to be humble about it. You have to recognize that you don't know everything and stop pretending that you do. You have to rely on others, I think, in order to have long-term long-term success. You have to hire the best people and you have to lead them and motivate them uh, in the right in the right way. So these sorts of things all end up in providing results. And ultimately, it's the results you're having that enable you to stay and grow and prosper in an organization over a long period of time. Um, you write that a uh, common mistake about leaders and organizations is picking people before developing a strategy. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it's one of my principles I talk about in the book quite a bit. Um, and, and a story will illustrate the point. When I was a young executive one day, I went into my boss and I said, I've got this great reorganization plan. And he's like, to what end? For what purpose? Like, why are you moving the deck chairs around on the Titanic do you know exactly what your strategy is? Do you know exactly how you're going to measure success before you do that? And I left with my tail between my legs and I said, no, I, I need to rethink this. And so that was one of those early moments that I said, wow, you really do have, there is a sequence to this. You really do have to start with what's my strategy before you set what's my structure. And then only then and only then, once you have a strategy that's set and approved by the board and you have a structure that you believe makes sense to execute the strategy, only then can you say, what people do I need? What skills, what competencies, what knowledge, what style and approach do I need? And so many people do it the, the, the other way around. I've had people come into me, here's my org plan. I'm like, what's our strategy? And they're like, I don't know. I'm like, then don't show me an yeah. org plan until, until you yeah. have it. Right. I mean, I had to learn that as a young exec. But for me, it's just there's a sequence to this. And if you do it the opposite, you're going to end up with people in, you know, in, in roles they're not qualified for. Possibly you're going to end up with folks who are endlessly frustrated and you're not going to optimize the strategy, the structure or the people. So there is a sequence and I encourage you to think about doing it in that way. Uh is there an organization today that you observe that's good at developing talent like GE used to be? I remember every like CEO uh, or they or somebody from GE was always one of the top three that everybody had to interview. Yeah, no, for sure, right? So you had you had Imult, you had the fellow who went to Boeing, uh, Jim McInerney, I think it was, and then you had the gentleman that went to Home Depot, and that all came out of when Imult was selected as the CEO of G, G, GE, right or wrong, as history might, might prove, 
Um, those other two guys went on, but they were coveted in the industry. So you're spot on that that GE had it, that in its culture. Um, you could argue about Jack Welch, but you can't. You know, a lot of things about Jack, which you could can't argue about about his commitment to culture and, and personal development. Today, you know, I look at Amazon, and I'm the I don't work at Amazon, but I'm told that they are absolutely committed to something. Have something called the Amazon Technical uh, Te- Technical Academy. They have a myriad of training programs. They allocate significant resources to growing their own and developing their own leaders uh, inside the organization. Again, I don't work there, but I'm told that they are one of today's better organizations at doing that. I know that Fidelity still does this extraordinarily well, that they still challenge people. They still move them around. They still give them a myriad of experiences to help them grow uh, you know, grow more more quickly than they otherwise than they otherwise might. So I don't have a list of ten or twenty, but those are a couple that I think do it particularly well. Uh, what skills are needed to manage, motivate, and enhance today's under thirty five year old worker who fixates on work life balance in a much more competitive world than we experienced when we were their age? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I have a. I have a premise, though, I think that that governs a lot of this, which is that young people today don't want to work less. They just work differently. And leaders have to understand this has been going on for 20 years. It didn't just happen with the pandemic that young people in particular today they want to work differently. They do want to have a bit more you know, life balance than than we were able to have when we were growing up as leaders, I think. Um, but they're equally hardworking. It's just it's just different. I didn't, you know, 25 years ago, have the internet where I would come home at night and clean out my email box. Most people are willing to do that today. But the trade-off is, hey, I need two hours off during the day to go, you know, watch my kid play soccer or whatever it might right. be. As a leader, you got to do that. You have to recognize that work has become not seven by 24, but yeah. it's closer to that than it was when we were growing up. We're tethered by all these devices that we have today. And, and most people, again, are willing to work equally as hard. They just work differently. And so that's sort of the first premise, I guess, as I, as I, think, about, as I think about this. I think the best companies today are companies that understand that, that, that the world has changed, are willing to adapt, but also, and this is really important, Mark, and we were talking about it before the show, you know, this idea that one can get ahead behind Zoom only, I don't think is ultimately going to pan out. I think building relationships requires face-to-face contact. Understanding culture requires face-to-face contact in an office setting, in my view. It doesn't have to be five days a week, but it has to be enough to matter. And short story, I think, will illustrate my point. So when I was at Ameritrade, we were growing like a weed, right? It was the meme stock craze, growing like an absolute weed. We had to hire 2,000 people within about a year. We also had the pandemic going on. All these people were hired remotely, virtually. They had never met their manager face-to-face. They had never been one of our offices. They had never had lunch with one of their colleagues. They worked from their basement. And candidly, they did a great job. So that wasn't the issue. But about six to nine months later, I was observing that we were over-indexing on attrition from that cohort, from that group that we had hired during the pandemic. And so we did all the exit interviews, and my HR team came back and said, this shouldn't surprise anybody. What we heard is, I've never met my manager. 
I've never been to your office. I've never had lunch with my colleagues. I don't really understand the culture as hard as we tried. And when another call center called them up and said, hey, we'll pay you $2 more an hour to do the same job, they, of course, went and did it because they had no loyalty to the organization. And so I think there's a need for human interaction. Um, Again, I don't think it has to be five days a week, but I think it's critically important that people gather, that people work together, that people build culture together, they build relationships together, and that's how you build durability. Last question, Uh, what effect do you think artificial intelligence will have on leadership? I hope not a lot, um, quite candidly, because one of my basic premises is that leadership is is a is a is a person to person sport. It is it is not technology driving it. It is a person to person sport. Uh, mentoring, I, maybe AI will figure out how to be a great mentor to all of us, and you know that's great. But at the end of the day, I prefer human contact and human connection. So I think AI may be supportive of leaders. In some ways, it may be supportive in the sense of here's some things to think about, here's some tools, here are some 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 capabilities. But at the end of the day, don't ever trade the human connection for technology. I think that is a huge mistake um, that you know will 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 be problematic for us as uh, individuals, as companies, and as a society. Peter, the hour went way too fast. Uh, we could have spent at least a few more hours with you talking about your book and your knowledge about leadership from all the great experiences you've had. We appreciate you being on and uh, we hope you'll write another book so we can have you on again. Mark, thank you so much. It was a great pleasure to spend time with you and your guests today. And uh, the second book, we'll, we'll have to see about that. Well, have a great rest of your weekend. And thanks everybody. We'll look forward to seeing you all next week. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.